0: Welcome to the Aetna Food Safety Podcast, where leading minds in food safety and technology share knowledge and experiences and discuss events and trends in food safety. Here's your host, Dr. Peter Teramina.
1: On today's podcast, I'm really pleased to welcome Dr. P. Michael Davidson. Dr. Michael Davidson is the University of Tennessee Institute of Agriculture Chancellor's Professor Emeritus and former head of the Department of Food Science and Technology at UT. Prior to his retirement in 2017, he served on the faculty at UT for 30 years and was Professor of Food Science and Technology at the University of Idaho for eight years. He earned a PhD in Food Science at Washington State University in 1979 an MS in food science from University of Minnesota and BS in microbiology from University of Idaho. Dr. Davidson's research program involves microbiological food safety, and it it did when he was uh, still an active professor. His primary research area was in food safety was characterizing regulatory approved and naturally occurring antimicrobial food preservatives. He's co-editor of the book, Antimicrobials in Foods, the third edition along with John Sophos and Larry Brandon. A second research area has been development and characterization of thermal and non-thermal processes to control pathogenic and spoilage microorganisms in food. Dr. Davidson has authored or co-authored over 200 refereed articles in journals, uh, book chapters and books, and given over 300 scientific presentations. And that's a lot of speaking at national and international speak meetings and industry workshops and the universities. He's previously served as co-scientific editor of the Journal of Food Protection and on the board of directors of the Institute of Food Technologists. Dr. Davidson was presented with the honorary life membership at the IAFP in 2018, the inaugural IFT Gerhard Haas Award in 2017 for outstanding contribution to food safety, the Frozen Food Research Award from the Frozen Food Foundation in 2016, IFT IAFP President's Recognition Award in 2005, and the IFT Food Microbiology Division Distinguished Service Award in 2000. He was Chair of the IFT Food Micro Division in '96 and Chair um, of the American Society for Microbiology Food Micro Division in '93, and his contributions. Uh, in microbiology and food science and food safety, uh, led to him being elected a fellow of the American Academy of Microbiology, Institute of Food Technologists, and the International Association for Food Protection, respectively. So, what an impressive background! And we're really glad to have you on, Doctor Mike Davison. How are you today?
2: Thanks, Peter. It's it's great great to be here. Uh... I wonder whether I shouldn't uh, let everybody know what the big secret is about the P and P Michael. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's kind of a long story. My my first name is actually Philip, uh, but my uh, when I was born, my uh, father wanted to name me Philip Philip after his great uncle, and then my mother wanted Michael. And uh, you know who's always going to win those arguments, right? <laughs> so I grew up as Mike, and uh, from that point
1: I've been P Michael ever since. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, once I heard a friend of yours call you PM. Is that a, a <laughs> yeah, moniker you picked up in uh, college?
2: Yes, uh, actually, uh, <laughs> when I be- when, really when I was became a professional, and, mm-hmm. uh, there several of my really good friends call me just P, uh, which they, everyone finds quite humorous, but uh, <laughs> I have no problem with it. So. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Well, that's uh, that's great to have you on. I really appreciate your time. And um, I know you are uh, retired, but you certainly have had an illustrious career in food safety and microbiology. Would love to hear more of your perspective and your opinions are welcome, of course. So,
2: yeah. Well, I just thought I'd, you know, uh, give you an idea of uh, how uh, I got into doing the research I was doing. Um, I'll go back a little bit later maybe with uh, uh, you know the, the education part, but uh, when I first started uh, in uh, food microbiology at the University of Tennessee, um, I had done my research, my PhD research on uh, food and microbials. Uh, as you heard, that was my primary research area for uh, most of my career, for all of my career actually, uh, with thermal process microbiology is secondary, and I'll come back to that a little bit. Um, but you know, one of the things you, you know, or, and everybody knows, if you're in microbiology and in food sciences, your research has got to evolve over the years uh, because you know you're always trying to stay stay relevant to uh, what we'll call an ever changing, uh, and, and, and really realistically, it's almost a fickle food industry.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, so initially I started out uh, back in that and this is like a long time ago people uh, in the 1980s to determine the uh, spectrum or actually the uh, uh, wide the range of activity of various food antimicrobials Um, and I kind of started out with the ones that were already uh, approved uh, by FDA, things like potassium sorbate, sodium benzoate, uh, or ones that had some potential multiple uses, because that's kind of what we were focusing on, was looking at something like, uh, I worked on phenolic antioxidants, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were already approved for use as antioxidants in food, and and, uh, my uh, PhD advisor had done some work, discovered they were also uh, fairly decent antimicrobials. Uh, so I I went further with that work to just to characterize those compounds uh, as far as uh, their spectrum and their factors affected their act, their activity against microorganisms. Uh, for example, we looked at you know things like pH, obviously salt, etc., and most importantly, uh, I think. Was to look at the effect of food components because uh, we learned fairly early on these things really work well in microbiological media, but when you put them into a food product, they seem to lose a lot of their activity, and we weren't sure why uh, until we looked at the individual components in foods, and we found out that really lipids were a significant uh, uh, had an significant uh, negative effect on the antimicrobial activity of, of the phenolic antioxidants. And it kind of makes sense when we've ended up looking a little bit at the, at the mechanisms because the, they in, really, part of the mechanism is that uh, these these compounds uh, were, were partially hydrophobic, partially hydrophilic or what they call amphipho- amphipathic. And uh, their mode of action, most likely is uh, to be attracted to this, the lipid component of the cell membrane. Well, you know, if they're gonna be attracted to that lipid component of a cell membrane, they're also gonna be attracted to the lipid component in the food. Uh, And that meant that, you know, there was like a competition for the the compound to even be uh, slightly solubilized in either one of those. So uh, that that was a big discovery for us and and really one that, uh, you know, uh, changed how we looked at uh, antimicrobials from that point on. Um, You know, I'd seen a lot of research uh, showing that uh, various compounds were were really effective antimicrobials. uh, And the problem with them all really was that they were only uh, tested in in, uh, microbiological media. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people would say, oh, these are going to work great in foods. Well, we knew better than that because, you know, you put them into foods and uh, you're going to lose a lot of the activity. So we looked at, you know, kind of kept looking at ways that uh, uh, to overcome that. And uh, one of the areas that um, I started really getting into Um, was naturally occurring antimicrobials. And I I did some kind of fairly early research on that. And I got to give some credit here to uh, one of the pioneers in uh, food microbiology, and that's Elmer Marth, Uh, the late Elmer Marth. uh, He uh, wrote an article in the 1960s on uh, uh, naturally occurring antimicrobials in foods. And and it was, uh, I read that, Uh, during my PhD, I guess it was, and I I just thought it was absolutely fascinating to find out there were so many compounds out there that had potential as antimicrobials, and I always kind of wondered, well, why didn't people check some of these things? (laughs) Um, And so, you know, that kind of steered me towards looking at at, uh, antimicrobials, not to mention the fact that uh, I've been working on phenolic uh, antioxidants, and uh, if you look at you know, food components, one of the, you know, really major uh, types of food components are phenolic compounds. Uh, they occur naturally in uh, hundreds of, of plant foods. Uh, and we thought, wow, you know, here's, here's a real wide open thing that we can look at. And so we started looking at uh, the antimicrobial activity of uh, spice and herb Uh, Herbs and then their essential oils. Um, So I think we we weren't like the first ones that started doing that, but we were uh, probably the first ones who really tried to get into doing it more uh, comprehensively, I guess.
1: In food systems.
2: Yeah, in food systems, always. You know, that was always the thing. Is like we. We we would test them first in antimicrobial or in, in media, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, none of that meant anything until we put it into a food system of some type. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that we also have discovered uh, where certain types of uh, these compounds worked in what types of foods. Uh, you know, I think I've always said that you know, if you want if you want them to work really well. Uh, find something that's that's got low content of lipid in it low protein level in it uh, which really kind of limits what you can put them into but uh, you know that's that's where you're going to get them to work the best such as things like fruit juices Mm you know the in the 80s and 90s the food industry uh, really started to become aware more aware of microbiological food safety that might be a uh, a uh, surprise to some people, some younger people, that uh, when we first, first, when I first started in the 1980s, uh, the food industry didn't, didn't consider microbiological food safety as important whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, they were really more concerned with uh, what the public was concerned about at that time, which were things like pesticides. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, the outbreaks, uh, food foodborne illness outbreaks, and the late eighties and early nineties that, uh, the industry and consumers really started to put some emphasis on, uh, uh food safety. Um, uh, so that, uh, also led to them to the food industry wanting to find some compounds that might help them, uh, as barriers to, uh, either, um, uh, foodborne pathogens or disease causing organisms and, uh, to a lesser extent, at least, uh, um, in you know, for everybody to know, that is, that uh, to improve their shelf life. Uh, so, a couple of things, you know, just to give you a, a little background on that is, up until uh, 19, 1990s, nineties, nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, that food antimicrobials were never used for food safety. Uh, it, with with one Exception, and that that was uh, nitrate to inhibit Clostridium botulinum in cured meats. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest of them were always used for um, shelf life improvement, uh, usually to inhibit molds or yeasts. Um, and you know it's important that people know that when you inhibit, uh, when you use food preservatives, uh, they actually do uh, slow or prevent the growth of these organisms. They don't cover up anything. Uh, but in the 1990s, then uh, the food industry started saying, well, you know, why don't we look at these things for uh, trying to help with food safety? Um, and fortunately, the USDA uh, also thought that might be worthwhile. So they, um, there were some openings for uh, funding at that point, which there really weren't much before that time. <clears throat> um What I ended up doing in in the last few years of my research was, uh, and I think most people are aware of the so-called clean label movement um, Mm -hmm. in which, you know, the industry is trying to get um, their labels to be, uh, I guess, quote unquote, readable to most normal people that have never studied science. Um, And so, you know, we, uh, became kind of a focus on that because we were working on natural antimicrobials and, and they would fit that clean label bill uh, most of the time because they come from um, things like spices and, and herbs. <clears throat> um, and kind of what I, by the time they got into this, we already knew which one, which ones of the uh, spices and, and uh, essential oils worked best. I mean, that was, it was obviously. They were thyme, cold oil, oregano, and cinnamon. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, there wasn't a whole lot of things done on uh, factors affecting their activity, uh, where they might work best. And mostly, more interestingly to me, was uh, a use of these things in combinations. Mm Because besides those ones that work really well, there's also ones that work slightly well. So we started looking a lot more at um, using uh, more and more combinations of the things uh, because the one downside to the compounds is that they uh, do contribute uh, a flavor, which is great if it's compatible for a food, but not so great if you're trying to put uh, oregano into ice cream or something like that. So, mm-hmm. Although it might, might give you a brand new product, I don't know. So I so mentioned.
1: A, yeah, go ahead. Uh, you mentioned that the, the, the most efficacious typically would be thyme, oregano, clove, and cinnamon. Mm-hmm. And as far as what you were discussing earlier about hydrophobicity, um, well, how do those each fall in, into that category? Are they amphiphilic or what?
2: Yes, each one of them, uh, the primary component in each one of them, because they have well, hmm. uh, probably anywhere from 50 to 150 individual components that make them up. But uh, the primary antimicrobial component in, in those is uh, thymol mm-hmm. uh, in, th- in time, uh, clove oil, it's eugenol, mm-hmm. oregano is carvacrol, and cinnamon it's uh, cinnamic uh, aldehyde. Mm-hmm. All of them are uh, very much hydrophobic uh, and three of them are phenolics. Uh, the cinnamic aldehyde is uh, a little different. It, it's uh, probably the, one of the more unique compounds because it's not really a phenolic compound, but uh, it uh, seems to work even better than the phenolics do. So, <clears throat> mm-hmm. But they all are very much hydrophobic. Yeah.
1: So in terms of, uh, you mentioned combinations and delivery, delivery into a high lipid, high protein food matrix or are, are, are those some of the things you researched as well? Uh, it, uh, unfortunately, uh,
2: not,
1: not a lot. Uh,
2: I, I don't know why. It just seemed to me like that was a really promising area. Um, I'll tell you, one of the, one of the problems with um, the um, uh, natural antimicrobials uh, in particular is um, the lack of information on uh, their mechanisms of action. Mm -hmm. Uh, There have been hundreds of research papers on mechanisms of these things, but uh, few if any of them uh, really are necessarily looking at uh, the targets uh, for these compounds. Uh, Everybody knows that uh, they start at the cytoplasmic membrane. Uh, and we know that there's differences between gram positive and gram negative cytoplasmic membrane, so, or, or at least the membranes of gram positive and gram negatives. Um, and, you know, to say that they disrupt the cell membrane uh, is fine because they probably do, but, uh, that, and that may cause some leakage of in intracellular materials from those cells but that doesn't necessarily kill them. Uh, It may only injure them or it may just be something where they easily overcome it. Um, And that's the problem is because we don't really know uh, what is happening uh, to cause major inhibition or actually even inactivation uh, when you are using these compounds. Uh, Because we don't know that, it's hard to find combinations of antimicrobials. uh, And I'll I'll just say that about all of them is, uh, if you're gonna use things in combinations, what you would like to see is um, taking two compounds, using them together and getting what's called synergistic activity. Um, Mm -hmm. Synergistic activity would be like getting more activity than the two of them could provide alone. Uh, even if you put them in there alone. So, uh, you know, that's what we're always looking for is something that uh, you can reduce the comp uh, the concentration of these things significantly uh, and therefore have less of an effect on sensory properties, but still get the same antimicrobial effect. Yes. Um, and you, if you're going to put two compounds together, if they both work the same way, you're never going to get Most likely never going to get synergistic activity because they're both doing the same thing. So it'd be like one plus one equals two. Mm -hmm. Uh, If they work differently and one enhances the activity, the other one, that's where you can get synergism. You get one plus one equals three. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's what we were always looking for. Um, But again, we're kind of working in the dark most of the time because we don't really know uh, specific things about the mechanisms of these things. yeah. In really, the one of the final research projects we did, we we uh, took uh, four different compounds that uh, were reportedly different in how they uh, um, or what their mechanisms were. Uh, and again, was um, you're kind of relying on researchers to to uh, come up with a mechanism that makes some sense. <laughs> so that way, sometimes they don't make any sense. Uh, and, you know, we were able to, using these four compounds with reportedly different mechanisms, uh, significantly reduce, in fact, by 83%, uh, I believe it was, is how much we got them down to of, of the con- original concentrations of the compounds uh, to still get the same activity. Um, I think there was a lot of promise in that. Uh, yeah. You know, we we could maybe get down to that level of, uh, not having any significant effect on uh, the sensory properties, and we were doing this with all compounds that were considered should be considered to be natural so mm-hmm. uh, that I think would be a a really great thing for you know somebody to research further
0: yeah,
1: definitely a lot of uh, potential there for as you said and making these more practically usable in a variety of food matrices right. without impacting sensory. One of the things I think caught my attention years ago looking at your publications was how you described all this um, additive effect, antagonistic effect, and the synergistic effect. Um, I think you had some book chapters and maybe some publications in journals that really brought that to light and was really helpful in showing. um, If anyone wants to know, look up uh, uh, fractional inhibitory concentration Mm -hmm. or um, F-I-C, isobolograms, and you'll find some interesting work by Dr. David. And I, you know, that, how I got into that was,
2: uh, I, you know, I think a friend of ours, uh, Dr. Mickey Parrish with FDA now, uh, mm-hmm. he was a graduate student at North Carolina State. And he and I met at a uh, an IFT meeting one time, I think, and uh, we were talking about uh, methods for uh, determining uh, the effects of combinations. And I, I had read uh, uh, the book on um, uh, clinical uh, methods for uh, clinical microbiology uh, in doing antimicrobials. And it wasn't my idea. It was came from uh, clinical microbiology. Uh, they had these things all, you know, uh, uh, standardized as far as, uh, what <clears throat> what methods to use? How to how to um, evaluate the effect of combinations? That's the hard part, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to figure out uh, if putting two things together actually gives you uh, greater activity than using them part. It sounds easy, but it's not, and it uh, it requires a lot of testing of different combinations to figure that out. Uh, but we just borrowed that from clinical and uh, we, I think we first published a paper on that in the early 1980s, trying to get people to use that more. <laughs> it took 20 years <laughs> before people started using it. It, yeah. it. it was like pulling teeth, you know, I'm yeah. sure. <clears throat> but I think now it's pretty uh, well adopted as if you're going to mm-hmm. test combinations, you do it that way. So,
1: Well, I think it's great because... I mean, it's a lot of, a lot of what our field is, is finding these more basic techniques or basic science and, and applying it to right. food food mm-hmm. safety, food science.
2: I always told my students that if you wanted to figure out what the, the next new technique was in microbiology is make sure you go to American Society for Microbiology and mm-hmm. look at the other, other fields to see what they're using. So. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: The other part of that is like translating the outcome of research or communicating research and then translating it to practical use. Yeah. Such an important part. And I think it's often missed or overlooked. Um, so that, that was another way. I felt like um, you've demonstrated a way to over the years, how to, how to communicate. And you've spoken as your bio, we read earlier, 300 times an estimated 300 times at professional meetings and other venues to communicate the outcome of research is that just something you have a knack for or, or how did that how did that come to develop
2: sometimes I don't know that theres <clears throat> I, I kind of have an idea of why I'm fairly good at uh, breaking things down for people I um, I know this is going to sound a little weird, but uh, I used to be uh, m- my daughter's soccer coach. And uh, the, uh, the first place I started coaching little girls and playing soccer was uh, with an under 10 team. And uh, I learned very quickly that, you know, uh, trying to talk to under uh, 9 and 10 year old girls uh, using the language of adults is not going to work very well so i learned really well on how to break things down for them to help them understand what we were trying to do and i think that really helped me (laughs) from that point on you know i mean i sure i coached girls for uh like about eight ten years and uh and it just it it is there's a talent i think in in being able to explain things uh, uh so that people can understand what you're talking about and i think it's uh you know, it's just absolutely critically important because I hear people talk sometimes and I'm just going, do you realize that nobody in this audience understands a word that you're saying, you know, <laughs> uh, right. you know, I just want to stop and go. What what they mean by this is and what they mean by this is uh-huh. it, it's uh-huh. hard for people to do that. Uh, yes. I don't know why, but uh, and the more you do it, you know, I guess the more the more I did it, the, the better, easier it got, you know, I I. When I taught class, I I would always look at the the material and go like, okay, well, I see this, but, you know, are they going to see it and are they going Mm -hmm. to understand it? Mm -hmm. Uh, What can I do to help them understand it? And uh, that helps them a lot. So I I don't That's that's my only explanation. It's kind of weird, but (laughs) that's 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 a great,
1: great (laughs) anecdote of how. Yes. But a couple of follow up questions to that is. Number one, our our grad students and undergrad students a lot like ten year old girls in terms of their <laughs> capacity to grasp what you're saying. You just started a different
2: place, is all. <laughs> uh, and, but the idea is but, exactly the same. You know, yeah, it's like yeah. uh, you can't but, just go start at you know where what you know and expect them to sure. be able to catch up with that. And so the, I always would try and you know test the students out, figure out, okay, well, what what do they know and how much do I need to explain to them?
1: Some of them, they don't need
2: very much at all. Some Mm -hmm. of them, they do a lot. So,
1: uh. I'm interested in, just real quick, you know, when you do a lecture, when you've done a lecture, either to students or a big audience of, you know, like 300, 400 people at IFT or something, how do you know, or do you, look in and, and see if you're getting a point across to the people that are sitting there listening or you know the few that might be sleeping which always happens right yeah, How do, you, yeah. do you do you get a sense of of whether you're connecting on i i try
2: to do that as much as i can um mm-hmm. you know i i will look in the audience and see if people are actually looking up or whether they're looking at their cell phones or yeah um and i i Fully realize that there's a, there's a percentage you're never going to get to, but mm-hmm. uh, if I can get you know half or more of the people uh, uh, focused, and I, I will use try and use some humor and things in there just to you know to lighten things up uh, and make it a little more entertaining for people. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean it's, it's even in classes you can see that there's the people in the back with their cell phones, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, And I don't, you know, in my opinion, if they're there to learn, that's great. If they're not there to learn, then that's they're wasting their money. But, you know, mm-hmm. that's not my problem. So, <laughs> <Sure>. yeah,
1: <laughs> I remember and maybe some context is appropriate. I came up in grad school in this field in the late 90s and remember going to IFT, IAFP, which at the time was Fest, um, and maybe some ASM conferences, and I saw you speak and you were among like a select few of scientists that always, I could always follow what you were saying and came away with a really good impression and really actually motivation to go dig more into the science about what, what you just spoken about. So that's kind of why I, I feel like I have a, a firsthand experience that see that, that observing you speak and then learning and actually you know, kind of modeling in a, some sense uh, at times, based on you and some others that were were giving these lectures and, and throughout those years. Well, thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> That's very nice of you. Well, um, so shifting gears, um, I wanted to ask you. You mentioned clean label,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and of course, uh, one of the quotes I remember you saying once. I overheard at either a meeting or something. (laughs) It wasn't too bad. (laughs) No, it it was to the extent of, and I'm paraphrasing, um, you know, no preservatives. Uh, So what? What's so great about no preservatives? I mean, do you want a short shelf life? Do you want, you know, pathogens to potentially grow? So that's how how are you? I had a couple of points on that.
2: Um yeah, I think my philosophy was uh that you know, you could you could pull out all, all the preservatives um and I I don't I don't know where in our 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 vocabulary the term preservative became such a horrible thing. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it's because people seem to think that it's uh there to cover up any uh negative things that are going on with the food. Uh, And, of course, we all know that uh, there are no preservatives that cover things up. Uh, FDA would never allow those things. Uh, What they actually do is they prevent things from happening, uh, and that's the whole idea. But, you know, if you start pulling all these things out, uh, what they do is prevent deterioration of the food. Uh, In some cases, you know, if we look at antioxidants, which are also preservatives, uh, they Keep the food from becoming uh, rancid and producing hydroperoxides, which are very uh, can be even carcinogenic. Uh, and if you pull the preservatives out, uh, if they're there for uh, in improving shelf life, uh, then you're going to have very short shelf life food. And if you live in the south and you buy bread and you leave it out on the counter for one day and you come back the next day and it's moldy because it's all natural, that's why. Okay, uh, you're going to have to deal with that. It it contributes greatly to food loss, Uh, and we're talking about very uh, safe compounds that can be added to these products that uh, will extend the shelf life and prevent the food from being lost uh, or wasted. And then finally, uh, you know, you uh, open yourself up to um, microbiological hazards, Um, you get potentially faster growth uh, of uh, pathogenic organisms in these products, um, and also uh, moles that produce mycotoxins. Uh, that's another one that, uh, you know, long-term exposure to mycotoxins uh, can be uh, detrimental to your liver. So uh, not only do you have chronic problems, but you have potential for long-term problems. So I think you know, it, it's just very unfortunate that uh, someone, uh, and I can probably name a few people that uh, uh, put such a negative connotation on, on the word preservative, but um, it's kind of been uh, built up over the years, and, and now uh, I'm, I'm almost kind of sorry to say the food industry uh, has taken a uh, as the gospel truth uh, because consumers uh, seem to require this uh, but I, I don't know that this is going to all turn out positive for everybody <laughs> in the long run I, yeah. uh, you know there's just a lot of products that can't exist uh, without some kind of uh, protection shall we say um, and uh, so that's, that's my big concern Uh, From removing all these things,
1: right? And these, these, these uh, preservatives like benzoate, you can find benzoate naturally in cranberries, for instance, or sorbate occurs in um, rowan berries, right? Right. So um, these are like just because they're synthesized for you know scalability and cost production does not mean that they're chemically any different, right?
2: Well. Now, you know, for the, if we look at some of the things that are being used uh, as natural type components, uh, there's uh, a lot of um, uh, vinegar uh, ingredients, vinegar based ingredients that are, you know, before they were on the label as acetic acid, now they're on the label as vinegar. It's the same exact thing. Uh, but for some reason, people will accept vinegar, but they won't accept accept something like uh, horribly sounding like acetic acid, despite the fact they use, use vinegar all the time. Uh, same with uh, lactic acid, uh, citric acid, uh, uh, sorbic. Like you said, is uh, occurs naturally. So you've got a lot of component or a lot of compounds that actually occur naturally that uh, are considered to be quote unquote synthetic. Or uh, unnatural, I guess, because they're synthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, celery powder is another one that is yeah. is very interesting. Uh, I know you're familiar with the celery powder, yes. uh, the the big secret of the meat industry. Uh, okay. That yeah. uh, you know, it's really a as big a source of nitrite as if you put nitrite in it in the first place. But yes. uh, uh,
1: And uh, there's a petition uh, being considered by the USDA. It was from CSPI that they want processors to correct some of the labeling that they're using for uncured, quote, unquote, uncured, or uh, no additional nitrite added type statements. (laughs) Well, you know, I I also heard the industry people
2: talking about the fact that they they tried to call them regular hot dogs or... Mm -hmm. uh, cured meats but the USDA wouldn't let them because they weren't adding nitrite so Mm -hmm. uh, they had to go to the uncured part of it Uh, but you know I think that is well uh, you know I think they're it it just every time I tell any consumers that what the real truth is about it they they go oh you're kidding me (laughs) yeah no no look at the label people (laughs) Yeah.
1: yeah Well, it, it, it does create a lot of confusion, and then from the labeling standpoint, and then what category are you in? Yeah, in terms of botulinum control or Clostridium perfringens control, uh, it it definitely impacts both sides of that equation, right? Because right, if you, and then if
2: you, I've got no problems with celery powder. I just think that, yeah, uh, you know, it just seems like kind of a cop out way to get around something. Uh, <laughs> You know, instead of educating consumers that there's nothing wrong with nitrite, uh, let's try and fool them and think that somehow somehow celery powder is a lot better than adding straight nitrite when you're really adding
1: exactly the same thing. There was a really good effort by the Meat Institute. I think Janet Riley, uh, who is now no longer with Meat Institute, I think she's working with Maple Leaf Foods now, but she did spearhead an effort to go out and interview meat science professors, and she called it, or they called it, um, I think it was the meat myth crushers. Um, oh, so, okay. okay. Yeah, they, I'm they not did. familiar with that. That sounds good. Well, the fact that you're not familiar maybe <laughs> yeah. speaks to the fact that maybe they didn't quite succeed in getting the message no. out far enough, but um, there was an attempt at just, yeah, but you're right. I think consumer education is definitely needed.
2: It's easier, I think, for the industry to uh trying to get around things and, and it's not you know i i don't blame the technical science people at all because i think some of them are uh it, it's really the marketing people that are that are uh initiating all this stuff and because i talk to the scientific people a lot and fu- hear about the horrors they have when the marketing people come and tell them to pull out everything in there that that they can't pronounce. And yes, that means he got about four
1: things left. You know. Yeah, it's it's a conundrum.
2: Yes, very much so.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to talk at all about the the exhaustive reference? I would say, or maybe lack of a better term, uh, antimicrobials in food. Do you, uh, that book that is yes, really. Uh, yes,
2: yeah. we first. Uh, My uh, PhD advisor, Larry Brannan, and I first uh, edited a book called Antimicrobials and Foods. uh, I think it was like 1980s, maybe 85, something like that. And it was really well received. um, And it really was just a compilation of uh, chapters on on the individual uh, antimicrobial food components or Preservatives, as people call them, um, and so we ended up doing a second edition, and uh, I did that one, I think, with John Sophos, uh, or maybe it was just Larry Brandon then. But John Sophos came into the third edition, uh, and then uh, wanted they've been trying to get us to do a newer edition for quite a while. So we're, we're working on the fourth edition. We're making a lot of progress. We're we're very close to. Uh, having all of our chapters in and, uh, uh, you know, getting the things. We're shooting for a publication date of 2020. uh, So this will be the fourth edition. And of course, it will be much more up to date uh, than the third edition. But uh, stick to the principles we had for all the earlier editions, which is uh, to try and give a comprehensive uh, viewpoint of uh, all the potential and actual uh, antimicrobials are used in food. So, we, we usually had uh, things covering like an introduction, maybe a little history, um, their spectrum of activity bacteria, molds, yeast, viruses, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of their uh, mechanisms of action, uh, their application, uh, and in some cases, we had uh, sections on assaying the compound in foods uh, for people that wanted to know how much was there um and so most of the chapters this time will have that same component although we have some sometimes we have potential food antimicrobials and those may not have all the sections in them but uh they would be things with a little bit more cutting edge and we'll we'll of course be addressing things like clean label and things like that in this upcoming edition as well and i believe
1: you're a, a chapter author on it i am and as we were talking i have to get That finished, as we were talking before. (laughs) So as soon as we hang up, I promise. Okay, good, (laughs) good, good. Um, So how did you get into this field of food microbiology?
2: So I don't go on for too long here. I I just, uh, I started uh, when I was in microbiology at the University of Idaho. Uh, I took a food microbiology class and I go, this is the most fun thing ever. Uh, and I, uh, was very fortunate that, uh, when I was a senior, I had one, I had to go one extra semester. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm like anybody, anybody else with an undergraduate. Uh, I messed around a little bit. Uh, so I had to go one extra semester of it. Uh, I, uh, ended up working in the laboratory, uh, of, uh, Dr. Richard Heinz, uh, who had just, uh, to Idaho from the University of Wisconsin Department of Bacteriology, where he was working on Clostridium botulinum. And we worked, this was like 1972, and uh, we were working on looking for interpathogenic E. coli in cheese. I'm, and you know, I'm sure I don't know if you're familiar with the history, but uh, there was no pathogenic E. coli before 1972. <laughs> I mean, there was no known pathogenic E. coli, and, and then there some outbreaks then and and it really became just kind of started becoming an issue in foods and i just fell in love with it uh, i just thought this was the greatest ever and dr Himes is really a great mentor he uh, talked me into going to graduate school and told me all the places i should go and i ended up going to minnesota and i uh, was fortunate enough to work uh with uh, frank Busha as a as a uh, mentor and uh irving flug who was uh, uh, really, probably the world's expert on yeah. uh, microbiology and engineering of sterilization processes, yeah, the fluke curves uh, yeah, yeah exactly wow. hmm. um, and so I was really fortunate to work with flu because I learned all about thermal process microbiology and and engineering, uh, which is very unique in the food industry. <clears throat> um so that's helped me a lot you know as i've gone through the years i didn't didn't do a whole lot of research on it but i did do some and uh thoroughly enjoyed doing it you know because of my background with dr flu when i finished my master's at at minnesota i went to washington state which was closer to my home which is northern idaho uh, and i worked for larry brannan and uh, that's where i really got into uh looking at the antimicrobials uh, aspect of of uh food microbiology um and the other thing you know one thing as a tip for students i think um uh, uh, when i was at washington state uh i you know i was kind of interested in everything uh and I, one of my my graduate student colleagues gave a presentation his name was john baronowski and uh Give a presentation on uh, phenolic compounds and foods. And and he had a section in there. And I I still remember reading his, his abstract. And I said, you know, uh, phenolic compounds can be used uh, for, or can be antimicrobials. And so after a seminar was over, I said, I went, John, we started talking about this. And uh, we were both like really interested in these things. And, uh, we weren't working on antimicrobial f- phenolics at all, except for I was working with the phenolic antioxidants, but that was totally different at that point. Uh, and so, you know, we came up with this idea. We, we actually designed an experiment and we went into the lab and we, without even telling our advisors. We, we ran all these experiments mm-hmm. uh, on the effect of uh, various... Um, uh, oh, uh, let's see... Caffeic acid, now I can't the name of the group name, it uh, escapes me, uh, but it was pericumeric, uh, fumaric, uh, and caffeic acid, mm-hmm. uh, and they were all naturally occurring in grapes and their effect on the growth of yeast, and the idea was that uh, there's these things called stuck fermentations, and we were looking at uh, some of the phenolics as potential Uh, inhibitors of yeast uh, that might cause stuck fermentations. Uh, And so we did all the work uh, on our way to IFT uh, in, I think it was in St. Louis or something like that. We actually wrote the paper together. uh, And when we got back, we handed it to our advisors. And uh, after they were, uh finished going how did you pay for this and you know all that kind of stuff they go oh that's pretty cool <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so that was we published it uh we got it published uh, uh in journal of food science and uh you know it was just something that uh i was interested in and so was he and you know you can do these things on your own. You don't have to have everybody directing you all the time. You know, Mm -hmm. that's what I guess I'm trying to say is it was an opportunity that I got just from listening to someone.
1: So Mm -hmm. keep your ears and eyes open. Yeah. That's great advice. Well, I I think uh, we're getting close to the end of our time together, but um, do you have any final thoughts that you wanted to share about food safety or the career of food microbiology or anything else?
2: Well, I think I've said this many times is uh, I feel as though I'm one of the luckiest people in the world. Uh, and I really have to thank Dr. Dick Heimsch for that. Okay. Um, you know, he helped me uh, in coming up with a direction for my my career, which I'd never, never dreamed of uh, even the day before I started working in his lab. And I have enjoyed this career more than anything else. I, I can't imagine having any other career uh, and having so much fun doing it. I mean, I really did enjoy this career. I enjoyed working with students. I enjoyed doing the research. I uh, enjoyed working with our professional organizations. Um, I don't think there was, well, uh, I, mean, I won't say there were never minutes, but there were very few times in my life where I ever felt like I was, it was like drudgery. I was always just very, very exciting and very, very fun. And I, I really, uh, highly recommend, uh, any students to, uh, look at food science and food microbiology because I don't think you'll ever regret
1: it. Mm-hmm. That's excellent advice. Well, and well, I guess we'll have to leave it at that, but I and um, definitely appreciate it. You've left an incredible legacy in this field and, uh, Thank you again for, for joining the podcast. Thank you very much, Peter. It was very much enjoyable talking with you today.
0: Thank you for listening to the Aetna Food Safety Podcast, where leading minds in food safety share insights. You can find more information about Aetna Consulting Group at etnaconsulting.com. Our handle on social media is at Aetna food safety please follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Anchor, or whatever your podcast platform. Also, if you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment to leave us a review. Until next time, think safe food.